Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Uh, hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Guys, we're recording this show in July, uh, so I don't get to say these words very much in July, but the Supreme Court term just ended. It School is. is out. School is firmly out. Unless, uh, unless potentially a uh, you know somebody retires, uh, that could bring um, it back in a little bit. Wow. But yeah, formally the I, term is over. I wouldn't put anything past happening in the year 2020. It feels like it's a year full of curveballs. But as of right now, we're recording this on on Thursday afternoon. The term is complete, and we have some really interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, there was yeah. the uh, the the there was. Sorry, Alex. Go ahead. No, yeah, I mean we have, we're we're going to talk about uh, Bill's going to walk us through the two big cases relating to the Trump taxes in a second, but just to offer a little bit of a programming note, we're going to talk about those two cases, and then we're planning next week to sort of put a put a button on the whole term, you know, as a um, you know in total. Um, talk about some of the big cases and the big trends we saw developing, um, so you can stay tuned to that next week. But as I say. The two, the two big, the two large adult Supreme Court rulings, uh, the big that basically that, that <laughs> the big beefy boys that everybody was waiting to hear from today uh, came down, both relating to um, efforts to obtain uh, portions of Donald Trump's financial records. Um, and Bill, I think uh, we should just dive right into it because it wasn't. Um, we should dive right into it before you get any more visceral in describing uh, the how, yeah, how, right. how large these rulings were. Well, this is a visceral uh, issue. A lot of people, you know, I mean, it, it, it just lends itself to that. But anyway, we were waiting for him and we got him. So what do we got? Yeah, the as Alex ably laid out, we uh, we got a pair of big rulings today on whether or not President Trump needs to hand over his financial records. One, one case dealt with. New York State prosecutors, one dealt with uh, with Congress, but the same issue of whether or not uh, those those bodies can get at his financial records. The rulings were sort of a uh, a mixed bag. Uh, they forced him to hand over the records to to New York, but but shielded them at least for the time being from being handed over to Congress. Um, but the, uh, you know they were pretty. Cl- this was pretty clearly a, a series of losses for the Trump administration. I mean, um, we can uh, we can sort of quibble over what they said, but um, and and you know undoubtedly uh, a, a landmark on sort of in the the pantheon of big rulings on um, the limits of presidential power. Yeah, and that might be the most interesting part because there's just not a lot of jurisprudence on presidential power. So yeah. these are going to be poured over for some time to come because they're. Was some of the only rulings we have on this, and um, we'll we'll get to that at the very end. There's some interesting stuff about just how rare, but yeah, yeah. Well, let's start talking about the first one. Break it down for us. So, right. So, the first case uh, involved uh, prosecutors in New York State, specifically uh, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance, um, who subpoenaed Trump's accounting firm, uh, a company called Mazars USA seeking uh, eight years of business and personal tax records. The the requests were part of a, um, a probe that we've talked about um, in various forms on the show before, but uh, the, the uh, Cyrus Vance's uh, probe into hush money payments that were made uh, ahead of and sort of during the 2016 election. Um, yeah. Trump himself, in this case, argued that he was immune from all 
state level criminal proceedings and investigations while he was in an office. Um, uh, the Department of Justice, obviously part of his administration, joined him and supported him in the case, but argued for a slightly less radical sort of, you know, categorical position saying that if you're going to subpoena the records from a third party of a sitting president, there's this very high bar. You have to make it very tough to get those kind of records. Yeah, I mean, the the, the sort of different permutations of the Trump sort of assertion of his authority or whatever took a lot of different shapes as the case moved along. Um, what did the court say about these various positions that were put forward by the government? So by a uh, a seven to two vote, um, it was Kavanaugh and Gorsuch joining the um, joining Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's liberals. Um, the court rejected both of Trump's arguments to keep these documents uh, shielded from New York prosecutors. When it came to that claim that I mentioned before about this categorical presidential immunity to these kind of things, the court basically went through and said, "Look." We we've all, we've long ruled that that presidents must comply with federal subpoenas. Yeah. Um, but 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 what Trump was arguing was that they need to be shielded from uh, state level subpoenas uh, for a, a, a few reasons. You know that it could divert him from his duties, that it would subject him to stigma, um, that it would subject him to harassment, these kind of things. Um, yeah. I didn't cool. know. I would just to, just to interject yeah. for a second. I did not. I mean, I follow this case pretty closely. I guess I lost track of the fact that presidential harassment, which he tweets like every other day, actually made it into like a legal argument, which was that interesting was, to read right. about. That was yes. one of the, the, the prongs the court was dealing with here. Um, yeah. So the court rejected all three of those. Um, they also, in this ruling, rejected the need for this heightened standard that DOJ had said, had, had argued for, saying, uh, again, that you know, it just wasn't necessary for the for the president to have such protection that, um, you know, sort of looking back at the way the courts had handled this in the federal sphere and 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 so on. Um, the full quote written by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts that really sums up the ruling. Two hundred years ago, a great jurist of our court established that no citizen, not even the president, is categorically above the common duty to produce evidence when called upon in a criminal proceeding. Roberts was, of course, referring to uh, Justice John Marshall, a famous old Supreme Court justice. Turning uh, back the clock on the uh, you I hear love the that actually John Marshall because, quotes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think any uh, anybody who's gone to law school has that nerdy part of them that's like, yeah. oh yeah, you get to kick it old school in this ruling and go like straight to the original source there. Right, and so and so much of both of these rulings we'll get to in a second, but so many so much of both of these rulings was sort of a history lesson looking back at at you know how courts had done this kind of stuff but so roberts basically said you know that, that that there was this basic rule and today we reaffirm that basic rule in in this context um so the 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 takeaway there is that that um the um it will go back to the lower court for a variety of reasons but that um uh that the the documents being sought here by by the manhattan da will eventually be be handed over um mm-hmm. uh is is sort of what the court said so that's a pretty big blow to the Trump administration on that ruling. Um, but there was a second one today. How did that one go? So the the second case dealt with congressional subpoenas sent by three different House committees that are investigating potential wrongdoing by President Trump, but also by his um, his family and his sort of associated businesses. They, um, uh, they targeted the same accounting firm, Mazars, but they also kept targeted uh, uh, Deutsche Bank and and Capital One, 
you know, all sort of looking at these same kind of documents. Though. Yeah. Um, uh, so President Trump sued to to block them, saying that Congress was not allowed to send this kind of subpoena um, primarily because there was not a good what, what the, the term that you saw thrown around a lot was legislative purpose um, for yeah. doing this, that, you know, Congress lawmakers are supposed to be. Um, you know, creating laws under our basic the basic ways that our system works, and um, that this was sort of stepping on the investigative and sort of the, the the things that the executive branch were supposed to be doing. Three lower courts rejected that argument um, in the various different cases, and so Trump appealed the case to SCOTUS, um, which is how we got got there this week. So I know we had. Um uh, it was the same actual voting block, um, but there's a difference that the, the, there was a slight difference in the way that they you know, viewed one set of subpoenas versus the other. What they say about the congressional subpoenas? We can talk about the difference between the two in a little bit. Yeah. So but by um, uh, by a seven to two vote along the same lines, as you mentioned, um, the court vacated those lower court rulings uh, that had allowed those those subpoenas to move forward. Um they didn't exactly agree with Trump or say that he was necessarily, you know, shielded from th- these types of congressional subpoenas. But what they said was that the lower courts didn't sufficiently analyze um, how such requests for information should be treated under the Constitution's separation of powers. So pretty weighty issues at play here. The, um, yeah. the, the quote when Congress seeks information needed for intelligent legislative action, it unquestionably remains the duty of all citizens to cooperate. Again, this was penned by the Chief Justice. Roberts, yeah. Quote, Congressional subpoenas for information from the president, however, implicate special concerns regarding the separation of powers. The courts below did not take adequate account of those concerns. So the court laid down this new test for how courts should analyze these kind of questions when these subpoenas are needed um they said they need to weigh the you know as i mentioned before the legislative purpose um whether the information could be obtained in other ways they need to carefully assess the burdens that it would impose on the other branch basically laying out this uh multi-factor balancing act that that courts should do when they look at these kind of questions uh, one of the big questions popping around legal Twitter today was whether that's going to be called the Trump test or the Mazars test for future <laughs> uh, uh, future jurisprudence. Um, but so we have there are and you've seen it already. There are enough strands. You know, we frame it. It's it, there are a couple questions about what it means for Trump specifically in this political moment, but also what it means for the future of the oversight of the executive branch. How are we to read both of these? Like we say, they, they 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 go a couple of different ways for a couple of different categories of subpoena. In these early days, these came out, you know, hours ago. Right. What right, is right. what what is sort of the the emergent consensus on what we can say definitively about oversight of the executive branch? Yeah, I mean, as you hinted, these are the kind of things to where it takes a little time to digest what it means. I mean, when you're getting lumped in with with centuries of of <laughs> law and and. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, very weighty um, questions about how the way that our government works. Um, it takes a little time, but obviously they are already among sort of the the ruling involving President Nixon during Watergate, the ruling against President Clinton. They are these sort of big idea rulings about the the limits on presidential power and presidential immunity. Um, but I mean, we can take away some pretty clear. I mean, the, the court flatly rejected that idea of that there's this special complete immunity when it comes yeah. to state investigations or even that there should be 
tougher rules. So that's really, yeah. I mean, that's pretty clear the the ruling yeah. when it came to the the New York State investigation. And As a reputation the con- of the Trump White House is like stated like defense of the thing. Exactly. You saw. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of ink was spilled leading up to this that that standard that they were seeking was yeah. you know radical or, or or just sort of far too too strong in terms of the the immunity that it would give the mm-hmm. the executive branch. Um, for the congressional inquiries, um, the the court. I, I said earlier that the court laid down. Um, a new test, but what I probably should have said was that they laid down a test at all. Um, yeah, uh, Ro- yeah, Roberts, this had just like never come up before, right? It had literally never came up. Um, the quote from Roberts: "Congress and the president maintained this tradition of negotiation and compromise without the involvement of this court until the present dispute. Indeed, from President Washington until now, we have never considered dispute over congressional subpoena for the president's records." So that is. That's actually wild. Let's take one moment to sort of soak in that that is very unusual. I mean, it's there's not a lot of stuff about basic like branches of government separation of powers that's never happened before. Yeah. And he made a point when he was laying. I mentioned the sort of multi-factor test that he laid down earlier. Um, he included this little thing at the end that I thought was funny that was like, you know, other stuff might come up that that I ha- we haven't thought of here that we will like should also be taken into account by a lower court because mm-hmm. quote one case every two centuries does not afford enough experience for an exhaustive list. I mean that's a, that's that's the old small sample size argument. I mean right. you know anybody anybody who who uh, is who is into baseball knows about that. Right. I mean, so this is like oh, we yeah. will we will update you um, uh, on the Pro Se podcast in two hundred years when the next one that sounds uh, about right. That the next one comes right. out. So. I mean I do think there's probably one last button I'd want to put on this conversation, which is I've already had friends that maybe don't follow uh, these cases as much that sort of saw the headlines today and they were like, oh, are we going to see Trump's taxes now? Right. Yeah, and not not soon, right? Exactly. I mean, the upshot, I mean, the, the the they're obviously being released for the purposes of a criminal investigation in terms right. of the New York stuff. So those will maybe move faster. But d- d- And even that is to subject which, to a grand jury. Sorry to interrupt you. Right. Even that is subject. That's a grand jury investigation, which is then subject to another layer of secrecy yes. rules and things like that. But yes. Right, which was my whole point, that, that, you know, yeah. that we may never see those even if they do get released. And mm-hmm. for the time being, in terms of the congressional thing... It is being um, sent back down to the lower courts to reassess it under this test that the court created today. Um, so whether or not they they side with the president, whether they side with Congress is left up for debate. I think there's some good analysis floating around out there about Definitely. whether or not this new test you know, favors one side or the other. But at the very least, we're not seeing the public is not going to see these things, um, uh, certainly not this year during an election year. And um, when they do, we don't know. Hey, everyone, it's Alex. Now, I was just talking to Bill and Amber, and they seem to be of the opinion that we have enough glowing reviews on iTunes and Spotify and Google and all these other podcast platforms. Now, don't tell them that I told you this, but they are wrong. They are mistaken. We are in desperate need of cool and good reviews if you are enjoying the podcast. Don't get on there and lie. You don't have to do that. But if you are enjoying the podcast, please 
uh, go to your podcast platform of choice, whether it's, like I say, Apple, Google Play, Spotify. Leave us a five-star review. You know the drill by now. It helps people find the show. It boosts our egos. Do that at your own peril. But anyway, we would really appreciate it. Uh, So yeah, uh, mosey on over to your platform of choice. Five stars. We really appreciate it. So for the second story um, on today's show, I I just can't get us away from coronavirus, guys. There's something to talk about every week. Nobody can. Nobody can do that. Uh, Literally literally the problem. We've literally been trying for months, (laughs) and we can't get away. Well, yeah. I mean, we are about four months into this pandemic. So there's a movement now in a lot of places, despite some areas that are seeing a surge in cases, there's other states and cities that are starting to lift stay-at-home orders and begin the process of reopening businesses. So that's leaving employers with just a lot of questions about how they bring workers back, asking a bunch of thorny questions about the best way to handle you know, all the liability that may come with that and, and really what steps they should take. So one of our employment reporters, Braden Campbell, actually tackled one specific question on the mind of employers. And as it turns out, there is one really straightforward answer. Should businesses force employees to sign COVID-19 liability waivers before they can come back to work? Uh, Like you say, employment law, very tricky. Lots of gray areas there. Uh, Tough to get anyone to take a definitive stance on lots of things, but... COVID-19 liability waivers. Are they legal? Do they work? What's happening? No. <laughs> All right. So it ha- that has been a good segment. Let's move on to our next one. Next um, one. We got Alsup. <laughs> we got Judge Alsup wilding out again. I know uh, it's really weird, guys, for me to oh. bring one where I truly have an answer where it's like, no, don't do that. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, on the face of it, you would understand why employers would be really tempted here to try to institute some kind of there's, waiver there's all stuff there's all sorts of stuff that people want to do that doesn't make it legal <laughs> that's kind of the story we're yeah. telling here it's well, this it's, harkens, a, it's a i yeah. i want to do it no but i mean i do have a little bit of an um an understanding about why there's such sort of intense interest here the pandemic is lots of risks on many levels and companies hate uncertainty and that's the kind of like looming liability that would just drive them crazy so yeah One of the things they're especially worried about is that plaintiff's attorneys are out there right now testing all sorts of novel legal arguments about employer liability in the middle of this pandemic. There's suits right now against McDonald's and against Amazon that are arguing those companies don't do enough to protect workers from COVID-19. They're using a theory that hasn't really been tested in this area a lot, that these unsafe workplaces are essentially a public nuisance. Mm -hmm. So this reminds me a little bit about, we've talked about public nuisance law being sort of stretched into environmental areas. And it's the same idea here. It's, It's sort of stretching that public nuisance law and what can fit under that umbrella. But the problem with liability waivers is twofold. They might be ineffective for what employers would want to do, and they could also even make it worse and open up employers to more legal disputes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, for for all of our, you know, we're doing a bit about, you know, definitive answers to legal questions, and that's true. Now, even if, a, a, as we discuss all these reasons why they are 
problematic to do. I mean, that doesn't mean anyone would, you know, not dare to even try. People try wild stuff all the time and wait to be challenged in court. Um, but let's talk through why. Braden wrote a really good piece that I would um, uh, encourage everybody to check out, like all the uh, COVID coverage. It's in front of the paywall. Um, but what were some of the things, what are some of the drawbacks to even attempting to do something like this? Yeah, let's so there. let's start with, with sort of the basics of like, you're a worker and you go back to an office um, as things are opening up and you yeah. get COVID-19. One thing you might try to do is to get workers' compensation. That's mm-hmm. um, the system that gives cash payments to people who are um, injured, injured or get an illness on the job. You hear about this in non-pandemic times a lot because... Somebody works at a factory and they get hurt by a piece of machinery. That's sort of yeah. how we normally think about this, yeah. this protections. Well, you're unlikely to be blocked by a waiver from being able to get that compensation because many state workers' compensation laws flat out say, you can't waive this. This sure. is forbidden. Yeah. yeah. And then even states that have workers' comp laws that don't flat out forbid a waiver like this, judges are really likely to say, that's the kind of contract that's unfair to the worker and to just toss it out. So it's probably not going to work for that. So what you mentioned that, uh, you know, it might not work, but it also might raise more headaches. Um, what kind of stuff are we talking about that could like be a problem for an employer? Yeah. So there, here's the sort of extra twist, I guess. Um, experts that Braden talked to said that any good plaintiff's attorney could probably use a waiver that you uh, asked an employee to sign mm-hmm. against the employer later on. Sure. So let's say you're someone who gets sick and then you get fired. The waiver could be evidence that an employer either sort of shirked their duty to provide a safe workplace and they just made people waive it so they didn't worry about it. Or that an employer was looking to actually punish workers that were going to get COVID. So they were just yeah. trying to get out of any responsibility in the face of this right i mean if you see a covid waiver or a covid liability waiver my first thought is well that employer wants their employees to come back regardless of whether they have it Uh, yeah and and so that's the argument that that plaintiff's attorneys are going to say exactly that that the the waiver is proof of that um plus you know just from a a lot of things we talk about with employment law stories you want your workforce to be productive and engaged at work. And this is just a morale buster. I mean, if you're asking people to come back, there's so much uncertainty right now. You lose all the goodwill if you make them give up legal protections before they can step foot back in the office or in the factory or, or wherever the workplace is. So one more sort of wrinkle to that is that employers could face unfair termination claims if there are workers who refuse to sign these as a condition to come back to work. So you're just sort of opening this Pandora's box of problems. So it seems like any competent uh, employment attorney would advise a client not to use these kind of things. So, I mean, or like, is that it? I mean, is that the end of it? I, I, I assume that there's some draw to use these things, but, but hopefully well, employers just don't, don't use them. As you guys have said, there's always people out there that are going to they're going to do this stuff regardless. And yeah. I thought it was worth talking about because part of what Braden uncovered in his reporting is that basically every management side attorney he talked to that's counseling um, uh, employer clients has had those employers come to them and ask if she, they should have one of these waivers. So it's really on people's minds right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of appetite for it. And even though these are a bad idea, people should not do this. Uh, Britton talked to uh, an attorney named Hugh Barron. He's a staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. He said that group has fielded reports from all sorts of employers who've already done this. 
there's in a wide array of, of industries, everything from you yeah. know, construction to hospitality workers, hairdressers, graduate student teachers, all kinds of groups are coming forward and saying, like, my employer made me sign this waiver. And yeah, well, think- like you said, I mean, there is a baseline appeal if you're trying to you know, if, if you're is. trying to get people back into your office, but that doesn't mean we've, we've laid out why it's probably not a good idea. But what did this guy have to say about yeah, it? Yeah, Barron really, I just, I want to leave with one quote of his that sort of puts this issue as it's bubbling up right now at this time when people are being asked to sign these into sort of a stark contrast of, of what employers want, but how it makes workers feel and how they're reacting. Barron said this, whether or not these are ultimately unenforceable, liability waivers put workers in a terrible bind. Do you sign and potentially give up your legal recourse, or do you refuse and risk losing your job? So um, it looks like it's that time again. It's time once again for William Alsup Comedy Hour, uh, the California judge. I have to think, I was trying to think today, outside of Supreme Court judges, I think this is probably the judge we've talked the most about in the three years we've done this show. undoubtedly. I think that's right. He's endlessly quotable. He gets lots of high-profile cases in his court. We've talked about him a lot. Richard anyway, Posner yeah. uh, retired. I feel like briefly before we we started the show. So that's a yeah. good point. Yeah, he would have um, been high on the list. But in any case, um, uh, so like you say, Amber, the colorful California judge. Uh, he is. Uh, we're talking about him this week as he expressed some pretty clear frustration with federal prosecutors um, as they are pursuing this criminal hacking case against this Russian national. Uh, also, uh, this week has already told the feds that their case is coming off as quote mumbo jumbo and gobbledygook. <laughs> love, In- love it. Interesting stuff. Yes, great. Um, well, um, yeah. What what happened? Just give us sort of the. I I almost don't care what happened. I loved hearing you say gobbledygook and that a judge said it. <laughs> yes, but I'm anyway. I'm I'm thinking about. Uh, starting an a- a- an ASMR channel where I just say gobbledygook and mumbo jumbo. <laughs> I tune uh, into that. I I I welcome feedback from the listeners on that one. Um, <laughs> but in any case, so the defendant here, like, like, this is this a it's a pretty it's a pretty simple to understand hacking case. Uh, the defendant is a man named Yevgeny Nikulin, who um, has been in custody for several years, and he was accused of hacking LinkedIn, Dropbox, and the um, uh, former online quiz company Formspring. He's basically accused of stealing uh, about 100 million user passwords, and he's now facing hacking, identity theft, conspiracy charges out in California. So... Um, but as the as federal prosecutors are finding out, pinning a massive hack on one single person can be a little bit tricky, and the government is 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 finding some difficulty um, as Alsup continues to question their strategy. Sometimes in front of the jury, it's a jury it's a jury trial that's going yeah. on. But Alsup is 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 making his his feelings known. And this week, the big dust up on Tuesday was over the prosecution's decision to use recordings of phone conversations uh, between Nikulin and his various acquaintances while he was in prison. And any federal prosecutor will tell you that, like, deciding to use prison recordings is can be fraught. Like, you're definitely allowed to. It's obviously admissible. You're in federal custody and you're being recorded. Everybody knows that. 
But you consider the circumstances under which people make statements when they are in federal custody, and it can it can poison the case if you if you if you right. present it incorrectly. I feel um, like anyway, people usually yeah. think about these in like a real Matlock kind of way, where yeah, sure, like, oh, yeah. there's a uh, from prison phone call that's going to break this case wide open. But that's yeah. often not I, how yeah, this I mean, turns you, out in court. Yeah, if you get a if you get a straight up confession, that's one thing. But what but what what's happening here is that on these recordings, Nikulin, um is heard saying things like. He was talking to uh, a girlfriend and an acquaintance of his. At, at various points, he said something like, I hack websites 24-7, and <laughs> I want to hack the prison that's currently <laughs> holding him. And they I like, hack websites 24-7 was the name <laughs> of my first screen name. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it was on, funny. On then, AIM. <laughs> then they called in like a Russian translator to talk about how like saying hack in this way actually has a couple of different meanings, like break it into a million pieces, not necessarily like intrude it cy- through cyber means. Very interesting stuff. But anyway, um, at one point on the recordings, he also asks a friend to send him some magazines relating to computers, technologies, women, or anything to, uh, regarding, quote, what happens in the modern world. And this oh, was but presented... I'm, <laughs> I'm connecting this. What happens in the modern world? Hacking. I this get was, it. <laughs> this was presented as evidence. So... Um, Alsup let them play ball on this, on presenting these recordings for a little while. But then when this, when this issue of the magazines came up, he interjects and he basically tells the jury to disregard any references to prison recordings as evidence, saying, quote, you've got to rely on the real evidence if there is any. So oh sort of, yeah, ca- casting a side eye to the government. Um, uh, he clearly wasn't happy with that with the prosecution's decision, but he let them say it and then sort of dismissed it in front of the jury. When the jury went out for the day on Tuesday, at the end of the day, Alsop goes in even harder on the prosecutors. He's saying this whole idea of bringing in the prison recordings, if this is what they say, um, has no probative value. He says, uh, he said to the government, why did you possibly want that in evidence other than to prejudice the defendant? The government answers him. Um, This is all courtesy of um, great reporting by Hannah Albarazzi. She's been doing a great job covering the trial. Um, The government basically says that the conversations demonstrated the defendant's interests in, quote, high tech topics and computers. So anyway, when they when they said that also just shot to attention um, and he just was completely, completely flabbergasted. Here's the here's the full quote that he said to the that he said to the government after they after they said that the recording spoke to his interests in computers <laughs> or high tech topics. He said, "Quote, then point the finger of guilt at a million people on Earth. If that's evidence of guilt, God help us in this country. That's terrible. I think it's going to backfire on you. The jury is going to say." What case does the government have if that's what they resort to? You may end up losing this case because of stunts like that. So, like, really not mincing words. Uh, he was—he he just couldn't believe that they that they would pin their uh, pin their evidentiary exploration on that. I mean, the reason why we talk about Judge Alsop so much is that he's outspoken and has moments like this during trials. But the other reason why he comes up a lot is because he is known as a very tech savvy judge and he's often handling these sort of, you know, industry defining cases. He handled the Google Oracle case in yep. the copyrights yeah. here. He and he handled- like famously knows how to code. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. so it's it's fascinating that that this has now circled back to that, that, it you know, he he's basically saying we all use technology. How can that possibly be evidence <laughs> of of me being a hacker or whatever? 
Definitely. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, th- th- this isn't a case of like talking about technology and kind of losing the strand of like some doddering old judge. Like you say, he knows his way around this stuff all the time. Um, the other thing, um, just sort of on the sort of question about the guilt or innocence of, of Nikulin specifically, he said that the government uh, had submitted strong evidence that someone in Russia committed this crime, but that's just a very far cry from convicting this specific person. He said, Russia is full of hackers. It's like Hack City over there. <laughs> <laughs> hack City. Hack, that hack is city. my favorite thing. I, I'm... I won't go so far as to say my favorite thing he's ever said, but it's pretty good. It's good. Hack City um, over there. That's great. So that, yeah, so that all happened on Tuesday, and the big dust up there obviously was about these 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 prison recordings. On Wednesday, he seemed to just be getting frustrated with the lack of clarity um, that the that the government was presenting. They had this sort of lengthy uh, uh, bit of questioning of this FBI agent that looked to sort of tie the defendant to these to these emails and screen names that were behind the cyber attacks. And Alsop asks in front of the jury whether this is, quote, just a dry hole and we are wasting our time. Um, so again, he's saying this in front of the jury. Um, so anyway, they are winding down uh, the case. As we record today on Thursday, I spoke with Hannah today before she went to court and she said they, they, they are doing closing arguments today. It's definitely possible you could have a verdict by the time you hear this. It is up to the jury to decide, but Alsop, the judge, has clearly made his position known. He, he, he left the government uh, with this little morsel. Quote, I don't see a lot of evidence this particular defendant did this. Maybe the scales will fall from my eyes when I hear your brilliant summation sort of casting uh, a not-so-shiny look at whatever they're going to do on closing. So I'll be very interested to see how that goes. Oh, what a great story to end our show with today. Thanks for being with me, guys. This was a fun one. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, contributing reporters this week, Hannah Albarazzi, Braden Campbell, James Nani, and Dylan Morosis. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se and you want to hear more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcasts. And please leave us a review on Apple. It helps other people find our show. Thanks and see you again next week.